Welcome to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. We look at the big human rights issues of the day, bringing in new perspectives from all over the world by talking to experts, academics, practicing lawyers, activists, and policymakers who are at the forefront of tackling these difficult issues. I'm Kira Allman. I'm Max Harris. And I'm Laura Hilly. Today's episode, I'm Not Here to Delight You, Women Litigating for Women, Indira Jo Singh and the Indian Experience. Last year, before the Indian Supreme Court, a remarkable exchange took place between opposing counsel arguing the case. So remarkable that the Supreme Court recorded this exchange in the text of its judgment. The case dealt with sexual harassment in the workplace, but it was no ordinary workplace. It was the High Court of Madhya Pradesh. The petitioner in the case was a judge of that court, as too was the respondent. The petitioner was suing for sexual harassment she had experienced as a judge. Harassment, she said, had been perpetrated by another judge. Counsel for the petitioner was senior counsel Ms. Indira J. Singh. Counsel for the respondent was a well-respected male senior counsel, Harish Salve. During the usual course of legal sparring in the argument, the bench pulled Ms. J. Singh aside for being overly interjectory during the speech of her opposing counsel. When the bench noted the objection, Mr. Salve said, The interjections by the learned senior counsel for the petitioner are always delightful. Ms. J. Singh's response was as memorable as it was on point. I am not here to delight you, she said. Women lawyers are not here to delight. Today on Rights Up, we have a special focus episode on Indira J. Singh, SC. One of our producers, Laura Hilly, met Indira in Delhi last month and talked to her about her career and experiences and the future of gender and the law in India and elsewhere. Indira J. Singh is a force to be reckoned with. She's full of life, intelligence, conviction and a desire to change the world. And the thing is, she actually is changing the world. As an internationally recognised lawyer, Indira J. Singh received her law degree in India in 1962. Throughout her career, she has earned the title of first many times over. In 1986, she became the first woman to be designated as Senior Advocate by the High Court of Bombay. She was the first Indian woman elected to the UN Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, and in 2009, she became the first woman appointed as Additional Solicitor General of the Supreme Court of India. She is a tireless advocate for women's rights and the rights of the poor and the disenfranchised. Her legal career has been marked by many important victories on issues ranging from child guardianship to divorce to sexual harassment to gender-based violence to homelessness. Indira J. Singh is also a founder of the Lawyers Collective, an organization of lawyers, law students and human rights advocates who provide expert legal assistance to the underprivileged, especially women and children, workers, the unorganized sector and other members of marginalized groups. So I met with Indira in her offices in Delhi this April, and despite the fact that she's clearly a woman with a lot of demands on her time, she was kind enough to fit me in. She was enthusiastic and keen to talk. Her office is the familiar scene of a successful advocate. It's stylish, yet brimming with files and draft briefs, law books on many different topics, also including a fresh box of her own leading textbook on sexual harassment in India, and a whiteboard in the corner marking out a schedule that, well, 
If the daily traffic on the way there hadn't made me feel overwhelmed, then this certainly had me bracing. Indira gathers a team around the table at the beginning of the interview. She's keen for the juniors in the office to be a part of this too. This is clearly her style. A busy and important woman, but never too busy to mentor and include others. It's worth pointing out that Indira is a little hard to hear in the first part of my interview with her, but do bear with us. The sound quality gets better as we go along. Indira, why did you first want to get involved in legal work? I must say that I started life, uh, my legal career, in a law firm. And not only in a law firm, but in one of the most conservative mainstream law firms in the country. And I think at that time the largest and the most respected. And that was uh, Mullah and Mullah, Craigie, Blunt and Carew. I'm sure you recognize the last three words because this is a firm established by the British in India, while the East India Company was still ruling the country. So as a lawyer, what drew you to focus on women's rights? Bluntly, frankly and freely the fact that I'm a woman. <laughs> okay, I mean, there could be no greater motivating factor than that. I'm very conscious of my femininity, I'm very conscious of my sexuality, I'm very conscious of my gender. And that gave me a natural attraction to women's rights. So if, it, if it's an issue of discrimination, you face it all the time yourself. But obviously once you become a professional, you have to learn how to distance your personal issues from your professional issues. And I think there the challenge is how do you bring your sensitivities to the profession uh, without uh, getting personal about it and transforming your personal experiences into legal categories. I guess that's how I've gone about my business. The legal community in India, like in many other jurisdictions, is still very much dominated by men. Uh, so what's it like being a woman working in this kind of environment? It hasn't affected my practice, but it's impacted me quite deeply personally. Uh, so, I mean, okay, in a certain sense, I've been able to transcend that personal impact. But there's no denying the impact. Uh, you definitely are isolated. There's definitely an old boy network in operation. It's not just based on sex. It's not just gender-based. It's also class. And the judiciary ends up becoming an inheritable institution. You have judges whose children become judges. You have lawyers whose children become lawyers. And if you belong, as I do, to a family where there was no one in the legal profession, obviously it's going to impact you. But I have transcended that impact by only and purely by linking up with community of disinherited people who want legal services and don't know where to find it. What's your take on Indian judges and how they deal with issues of women's rights? You know, wherever you meet, wherever you go, whether it's for a meeting or whether it's for a conference and you find judges, uh, you know, speaking or my colleagues, the first thing they tell me is, oh, of course, I'm also interested in women's issues because I have daughters. Okay. So, I mean, what does it mean? Why aren't you interested in women's issues because they're part of human rights? Why do you have to tell me? Why do you have to bring in your credential as a father into the discussion? And that happens all the time, just all the time. So it's, it's, it's irritating to say the least, you know. So have there been any changes to the legal environment in India that might have helped make it easier to advocate for women's rights or human rights in general? 
I was lucky because uh, I belong to a generation where the Supreme Court was democratizing its own institutional framework and there were judges who recognized that this system was really not suited to the needs of the Indian people and that's where gender justice comes in or justice for bonded labor or justice for the homeless or justice for the self-employed fits into that category. And it is these judges of the Supreme Court who said you have to abandon the formal rules of local standard that we've inherited and expand the notion of local standard and make standing available to public-minded citizens or to organizations who can raise issues of relevance to the large masses of this country. And where were you in your career when these changes were happening? I was in the Supreme Court at that time. So I grabbed the opportunity and I started bringing cases to court on issues of gender justice, also on issues of the homeless. I've argued the Olga Tellis case, then the Bombay Hawkers Union case for the rights of the self-employed, the Seva case for the rights of self-employed women. And we made fairly important advances in that direction. But also then the issue of violence against women assumed very, very major proportions in India and it was some amazing charismatic women one of them I'd like to name Satyarani Chadda she lost her daughter and uh, the police recorded the case as accident she was burnt in the kitchen and the police recorded it as an accident and here was a woman who said I refuse to accept this was an accident I want an investigation and it was this woman who was responsible ultimately for the passing of the section 304 for B in the Indian Penal Code, which talks about dowry death. Indian law is well known for PIL, or public interest litigation, the use of the courts to advance some of the causes that Indira told us about. But what does public interest litigation mean in India? We asked Arushi Garg, a graduate student in law at the University of Oxford, to give us some context here. I'm Arushi Garg. I'm reading an MPhil in law at the University of Oxford. And my research deals with uh, criminal procedures in cases of sexual violence in India. A good deal of Indira Jaising's well-known legal work hinges on public interest litigation. Arushi is going to give us a better idea of what we're talking about here. What exactly is public interest litigation and how is it used in India? So uh, legal proceedings usually require that the person who is approaching the court is also the person aggrieved. So if I, as a rights holder, find that my rights have been violated, I have the standing to approach the court. And what public interest litigation did is that it diluted this principle to a large extent because India is a land where the uh, vast majority of the population suffers some sort of disadvantage, some sort of disempowerment. So they don't all have equal access to justice. And the legal device of the PIL, as public interest litigation is known, allows someone else to approach the court on their behalf. Maybe a better route to achieve long-term change would be through parliaments. In a moment, we'll hear what Indira had to say about these broader issues of law and politics, of rights and democracy. The courts and public interest litigation have arguably been integral in forwarding women's rights in India. A lot of that has to do with the country's recent political history and the impact of that history on the judiciary. In 1975, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi imposed a state of emergency, 
which placed severe restrictions on civil rights and resulted in many concurrent forms of political repression, from the imprisonment of opposition leaders to censorship. During this time, the judiciary remained controversially silent. It lost a great deal of legitimacy. So when the emergency was finally lifted, the courts had a public relations problem that needed to be fixed. This led to a period of what has been called judicial populism. Judges increasingly took a majoritarian approach to social issues before the courts in an effort to win back public opinion. Public interest litigation rose to prominence during this era as a key tool of judicial activism. While many populist rulings were seen as progressive, there was a problem here. As Arushi Garg explained to us, it caused great dissonance at a time when people who sought constitutional protection were disempowered minorities, and the court refused to step in to protect their rights in the same way that they were moving on majoritarian issues. Here's Arushi again. If anything, these failed opportunities go on to show that while courts can be a site for contestation and reconfiguration of rights, judges are ultimately drawn from the society in which they adjudicate. The tension here begins to illustrate that there are big, looming questions related to the appropriate role for courts to play in forwarding social causes. Who should be doing this? Judges? Legislatures? Now let's go back to Laura, who talked with Indira about this very issue. Indira, what role can courts play in achieving social change? It happened in 2012 when Nirbhaya was raped. And obviously it started as a, a case for prosecution, but it did end in major reforms to the law relating to rape. But are the courts always positive? Surely sometimes the decisions can undermine as well as protect rights. It is not my case that the judiciary is a perfect institution or that it has a feminist approach. And yes, despite everything, you can have regressive judgments. But we in India have a history of being able to undo regressive judgments through legislation. Can they play a role in encouraging parliaments to pass legislation? I must say that it's a lot of these changes have been sparked off by litigation. But yes, there's an organic link between litigation and the legislative process. They've ended in a legislative process. And is parliamentary change better or more long-lasting than change achieved through activism or through the courts? It's not an either-or situation, quite obviously. And I, I think one has to recognize what I call the organic link. Even if you focus your attention on the political process, those same laws are going to end up being challenged in, in the court. So it is important for you to be everywhere. It's important for you to be in the courts. It's important for you to be on the streets. It's important for you to be in parliament. It's important for you to be in the media. There's no space which you can afford to abandon. So what about collaboration then? Do you work with the activist groups and other interest groups in society? The collaboration happened way back in 1975 uh, when we had an emergency in this country. And it was the protest against that emergency which not only brought women's organizations together, but it also brought a lot of other civil liberties organizations together. So if you ask me about collaborations, I think the collaborations are not just between women's organizations, but women's organizations have had an organic link 
link with other organizations which deal with civil liberties. And there just isn't a single issue, uh, whether it's of the right to work, the National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, or the right to information, or the development of the rape law, in which the women's organizations haven't had a major role to play. Indira founded the Lawyers Collective, an NGO dedicated to promoting human rights and women's rights specifically. This was founded in 1981. The Lawyers Collective is devoted to human rights advocacy, legal aid and litigation. It has a heavy emphasis on HIV issues, the decriminalization of consensual homosexual relations, the empowering of women through law. Probably one of the most important contributions of the Lawyers Collective to date was the work that it did on draft legislation to protect women against domestic violence. This work formed the groundwork for the Domestic Violence Act, or otherwise known as the DVA. The Lawyers Collective prioritised stakeholders' participation when they were developing the DVA. They brought in perspectives of real women who would be affected by the legislation. In the end, the DVA was a groundbreaking piece of legislation. It recognised that economic, psychological or verbal abuse was a form of domestic violence and provided a definition of domestic violence that was actually closer to the lived experience of women. In light of what we know about the historical context of public interest litigation, the Lawyers Collective does something unique. It advocates for the marginalised, the disenfranchised. It's activism that it advantages the oppressed. What Indira is advocating is something like what Canadian academics have called dialogue theory. This means that governments work best and we make the most progress as societies when courts and parliaments are speaking to each other, developing ideas in a broader political conversation. It doesn't mean that dialogue is ever easy or that it will consistently yield positive or progressive results. The political and legal terrain around women's issues in India and elsewhere is uneven and precarious. In 2012, India's hard-fought internal battles for gender justice were thrust onto the international stage when the brutal rape of a young female student made global news. On December the 16th, 2012, 23-year-old Jyoti Singh was brutally gang-raped on a private bus in South Delhi by six different men who took turns to rape her. She had been on her way back home with a male friend after watching a movie. The police ultimately found both of them sprawled on the road where they'd been thrown out of the bus having sustained life-threatening injuries. Despite emergency medical treatment, Singh later succumbed to her injuries and died. The event sparked national outrage, prompting a wave of mass protests throughout India, but particularly in Delhi, calling for justice, condemning violence against women, and demanding that steps be taken to protect the safety of women in public spaces. Police responded with tear gas and rubber bullets, but the protests continued, with the whole world watching, a committee was established to look at the ways that criminal justice could better address sexual violence. Ultimately, the committee released a 644-page long report, known as the Verma Report, which informed the subsequent 2013 Criminal Law Amendment Act. In the end, many people were disappointed that key recommendations of the Verma Report were not acted upon by the legislature leaving gaping holes in the legal protections against gender-based violence in India. 
For example, marital rape continued to be excluded from the Indian criminal framework. However, the Act did recognize some new offenses, including acid attacks and stalking. Limited as it was, it could still be seen as a watershed moment in the struggle for gender justice in India. But what was it about this moment, about this particular case, that galvanized public awareness? We live in a world that is no stranger to brutality or sexual violence, and India had witnessed many other horrific rapes in its recent past. What was so compelling about this case? Here's Arushi Dag. This case fits in very well with the real rape scenario. And the phrase real rape was originally coined by uh, an American woman by the name of Susan Estrich to describe what everyone regards to be a believable rape scenario. So basically it talks about how it will usually be a respectable woman, modestly dressed, the rapist will be someone she's never met before, he will be a stranger lurking in the bushes, the rape will involve use of extreme violence, she would have protested, and the victim in this case did protest, Jyoti Singh, she tried to fight her rapists off, she tried to bite them, and it sort of ticks off all the boxes in meeting what we would uh, regard as a real rape scenario. So people found it really easy to believe that yes, this is something we should condemn. Indira has strong views about how the Delhi rape case in 2012 was reported in the international media and what that meant for women's issues in India. Well, to begin with, I was very, we were all very critical. Many of us were critical about the approach of the Western media to the happenings in India. And we thought that was a neo-imperialist approach to the way in which the media was reporting these uh, events. Uh, it, it, it was beginning to sound a bit like the same old thing about the white man's burden trying to uh, retrieve, uh, you know, the conscience of the Indian people and so on and so forth. The Delhi rape was not only the spark that ignited a national movement, but it also created a transitional period in India's justice system. The importance of that transition led to the production of a controversial documentary titled India's Daughter. This was produced by the BBC and directed by Leslie Adwin. In it, the filmmakers interviewed one of the rapists on trial for Jyoti Singh's attack. The film, and this interview specifically, prompted public outcry in India for several reasons, some of them legal, some of them emotional, and some of them political. Arushi Garg helps us understand what happened here. I think for a documentary that is trying to talk about rape culture in India, it, you, you can't do it uh, effectively by adopting the lens that has been adopted by the filmmaker. The idea that this is a real rape, but you know, most rapes in India are not, they don't fit in with the real rape scenario. The portrayal of rape as a class crime and, and we are constantly shown these images in the documentary of this wretched slum in which this poor uneducated slum dweller perpetrates this crime against this like good likeable girl. We are told she can speak in fluent English and you know she's working, wants to be employed. It doesn't problematize that narrative at all. Like it's what we need to remember is that it's not just a movie about the incident because the movie is making very broad claims about sexual violence in India, about patriarchy in India. Yeah, I, I just don't think it offers a nuanced discussion of the problem. Indira Jay Singh was a prominent voice in the debate about the film, which had received a great deal of international attention. Here's Indira from our interview, talking about the India's Daughter documentary. 
with this new movie, India's Daughters, which I, for one, was highly critical of. There was, of course, a legal reason and a more ideological reason. The legal reason was that the appeal of these convicts is still pending in the Supreme Court. And now, if you're going to make a film in which you are pronouncing that the convict had no remorse, I think you're assuming the role of a judge, which you have no right to do as a filmmaker. Uh, apart from that, I think uh, the links between the history of movements in India and this particular event and how we dealt with it was simply not drawn. The other very frightening and alarming thing about this film was that it was intended to be shown to children and to be used in school. You are going to have a right to education conference and you can imagine the impact it has on a child to see a rapist like that, you know, a mugshot of a rapist, you know, that child is going to collapse. And uh, so how could something like this be used as campaign material? How could it raise consciousness? Whose consciousness was it intended to raise? That's one question I would like to ask. Certainly, we didn't need this kind of consciousness raising. So and it's telling that it's being used for a global campaign. What global campaign? Did the global community of feminists, did they consult the Indian women's movement before launching this global campaign? They did not. That's not what feminism is about for me. That's not what human rights is about for me. It gives you no directions in which you can find openings for change. So I think it was an award-driven film. In a move that actually heightened the controversy around the film, the Indian government banned India's daughter from being released in India. Here's Arushi Garg again. I mean, we can't ban some. We, we can look at a documentary as bad social commentary. But the thing is, people have the constitutional right to make bad social commentary. I think all of us condemn the ban in strongest terms and even those people who have been quite critical of the documentary also recognize that you know the better thing to do is to allow for critical engagement around the documentary and, and not opt for an outright ban as the Indian government has done. I mean the ban is controversial because essentially the reason that was originally given to us was that it's, it's going to impact tourism in India because women will stop wanting to come to India for tourism which I mean there's no talk of <laughs> of sexual violence or why it's nuanced or why we need to be intersectional or or even the fact that the matter is still pending in courts. It was just this thing about how it's it's bad for India's image. And I think of all the reasons that you can think of, what it does for India's image is is the least of our concerns. In a way, the debate around this film shows how far we still need to go to have a reflective and productive international conversation about rape and justice. The India's daughter controversy implicated legal concerns and political priorities. It came up against the difficulties inherent in tackling questions of gender, class and violence through the lens of a single incident. Importantly though, for the judicial system, improvements have been made and change is coming. Here's my interview with Indira Jaising again. So in light of recent high-profile sexual assault cases and the continuing difficult environment for women, is there reason to be hopeful? I mean, this generation of Indian women are actually almost born with a certain knowledge. I think there's some amount of knowledge which is in their DNA, whether they've picked it up from their parents or 
anywhere else and off, off from the universities they're going to, I really don't, I can't say. But it's a very aware generation. Now, whether they have made the links with 1975, I cannot tell you. I don't know enough about it. But uh, whether they were completely sensitized by the event, the answer is yes. Uh, they were out there on the street. They may not follow the paths that we followed. I don't know what direction they're going to be moving in. Uh, we, we, we belong to a certain framework of thinking where for us socialism was all that mattered. Nothing else mattered to us. And uh, But now this is a generation which is growing up in uh, uh, what we call privatization, uh, liberalization, neo-imperialism. It's a different world. So their aspirations and their uh, you know trajectory will be different from us. And that hope also comes from Indira herself. Indira is an inspirational figure in Indian feminist politics. Her work has a wide impact and the lessons that we can learn from her experience don't just apply to India, they resonate worldwide. Here's Arushi Garg reflecting on what we can learn from Indira's example. You know, patriarchy is universal and many of the issues that we are dealing with are quite universal. Like, I think we all have things to learn from each other, but the advocacy of Indrajaising shows that the law can be used to sort of subvert these structures in which women have to operate. I think one important lesson to take away is the perception of law as, as not something that's meant to oppress, but as something that is meant to liberate. And I think the second thing is, particularly her work on the Domestic Violence Act shows that we need to ask what the stakeholders want. So the act, when it was originally drafted, it received a, a lot of criticism because it is mainly a civil law. It doesn't look at domestic violence through the prism of criminal law, except to a certain extent. And I mean, that might seem odd to an outsider, but you know, if, if that's what women want, if, if the fact that their husband might end up in jail for the rest of, of his life is deterring women from reporting the offense, that's something that needs to be given value, right? So, so the idea of incorporating the voice of of stakeholders and actually trying to empower them rather than trying to save people, collaborating with people and empowering them rather than trying to, to lead or impose what we think they want. I, I think that's also quite a big learning which people everywhere should respect. So Indira told us about her story as a human rights advocate and activist. She talked about moving in what was a man's world through commercial law and into human rights law to achieve social change through the courts at a time when the Indian judiciary was democratizing. She spoke about building creative coalitions, working across parliamentary and legal and activist channels of change, and about dialogue across government institutions. Ultimately, Indira shows us that the struggle for human rights will always be a struggle on multiple fronts. It's important for you to be everywhere, she told us. There's no space that you can afford to abandon. Rights Up is produced with support from the Oxford Human Rights Hub, providing global perspectives on human rights, and the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities, a University of Oxford initiative that seeks to stimulate and support interdisciplinary research. Special thanks to Sandy Fredman, Tom Peach, and our guests. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Kira Allman, Max Harris, and Laura Hilly, and music for this episode was written and performed by Rosemary Allman.